Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. This episode is a little different than my other episodes as it's available for ASHA CEUs through Tassel Continuing Education. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs, then stay on until the very end because that is where I provide information on how to register for automatic ASHA reporting. Before we get started, we have some information to share. As a result of this pod course, you will be able to define co-regulation and why it is relevant to speech-language pathologists, identify three ways co-regulation relates to executive functioning skills, identify steps that SLPs should take to help students learn self-regulation strategies, and finally be able to describe a manner to teach social strategies and executive functioning skills. We have some financial and non-financial relationships to disclose. I have ownership interest in Speechy Side Up LLC and Tassel Learning LLC, and I receive royalties from the Luno's What to Do book series. I'm also a member of ASHA's Special Interest Group 12. Danielle Kent is the owner and operator of Peace of Mind Therapy and Consulting LLC, as well as the author of Max Learns to Pause. She runs the Brainy SLP podcast and YouTube channel, as well as the Aligned Professional podcast. Danielle has no non-financial relationships to disclose. Now let's talk about the agenda for today. We're going to start with introductions and backgrounds. Then we'll get into talking about what co-regulation is and why SLP should know about it. Then we'll talk about how co-regulation relates to executive functioning skills. Then we'll get into self-regulation strategies and how to identify them. Then we'll have a discussion about the steps that SLPs should take to help students learn self-regulation strategies. And finally, we'll wrap up with a discussion of the ways to teach social strategies and executive functioning skills in therapy. Today, I'm joined again by my friend, Danielle Kent. I'm so excited to have her back on the podcast. If you haven't listened to her previous episode, Danielle is a multi-passionate private practice SLP who is dedicated towards equipping and empowering parents and professionals to teach social communication and play tools from a neurodiversity and inclusion focused lens. Each experience has led her to this current path of encouraging individuals and teams to pursue alignment more fulfilled connections, and having more fun in their day-to-day life, personal and professional endeavors. Danielle also runs the Brainy SLP podcast, which you can catch on all major podcast platforms. Now that we've got all that covered, let's get started. Hey, Danielle, thank you so much for coming. Uh, Vanita, thank you so much. It's, uh, It's really great to be talking and to be able to talk a little bit more today about uh, all things that I love, executive functioning and more. Awesome. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? If they haven't heard your previous episode, I want to dive into all the things. So go ahead and start. Yeah. So, um, I'm actually going into, I figured out the math. I'm going into my 10th year as an SLP. I graduated in 2011 and that feels wild to me because as I'm sure you can agree with, I feel like every day, every week, every month, I learn something new. Um, so even 10 years in, I feel like I'm really still learning a lot every single day, which is awesome. That's one of the things I love about our field. But I've worked in a variety of settings. I started off at post-grad school working in a skilled nursing facility, and then I went to work in acute and outpatient medical settings. I've worked in preschool, middle school, elementary school, high schools, clinics, private practices. And then finally, I opened my own private practice in the fall of 2017, just after my son Troy was born. And ever since then, I've really just been on this path towards finding my own alignment. And I feel like 
within the last six months to 12 years, I've really stepped into it with talking about co-regulation, self-regulation, executive functioning, and then really trying to educate myself, you know, learn and unlearn a lot about how to do that from a neurodiversity and inclusion focused perspective. So it's been this journey. And I think we talked about this last time that my journey that I started out with 10 years ago looks nothing like it does that I thought it would in 10 years. So I, you know, I just spoke to a panel of SLP grad students about private practice um, in our state in Vermont at the University of Vermont. And I told them, I said, what you think you will be your dream job may not be your dream job. So keep an open mind because who knows where you'll be in five years, 10 years, you know, follow your heart, follow, you know, your, your passions, follow what you think is going to bring you to that ultimate level of alignment. And I think you can probably agree with that. You know, where we think we'll end up may not be where we really fall into alignment with. Absolutely. Yeah. I definitely did not think about having a podcast when I left grad school. That's for sure. Right. Or, you know, being a continuing education provider. Yeah. Those things you don't really think about. You're thinking about, you know, what setting am I going to be in? And it's nice to get those experiences, which we talked about on your podcast, um, about how all those experiences kind of lead you to where you're ultimately supposed to be. So I love the direction that you're going. I think it's a, an area of our field that hasn't really been touched on and it's extremely important. And you come at it from a personal perspective too. I know last time you shared that you, your son was kind of the impetus for diving into this area. Um, I don't know if you're going to talk about that a little bit more today, but that's, it's really, you know, it hits home. It really hits home. I think, um, you know, I'll get into this a little bit, but my son, uh, Troy, I have two kids, a daughter, Maddie, and a son, Troy, and Troy is now three and a half. And when he turned two, his emotional responsiveness, his, um, his ability, his impulse control, it looked a lot different than my daughter's. And so I, you know, with, with, with Maddie, with my daughter, she, she was able to regulate her regulation skills, you know, her emotional control skills were a little bit differently developed. Um, she would get a little bit upset at things, but was able to move on pretty quickly. And my son, Troy is the opposite. He feels things really big. He feels big feelings. And, you know, the thing I like to tell parents and professionals is when a child is dysregulated, when they're having a hard time, it can activate our own limbic system as parents, as professionals, which is that fight, fright, flight, freeze. It's the four, the four Fs that I say. And so my ability to figure out what to do as a parent was a little bit slower, <laughs> slower to, to develop because with school age children, when they're having a hard time, I'm not activated by it at all. If anything, I'm the opposite. I'm compassionate. I'm responsive. But when my own child was having a hard time, it activated my own limbic system. And, you know, as parents, we have triggers and it took me a while to figure that out. And once I did figure it out, I just started diving and doing a bunch of reading and I stumbled into something called co-regulation. And that has fundamentally changed how I parent, how I am as a professional, and even how I am as a partner in, you know, my marital relationship and in my friendships as well, because co-regulation is something that we really participate in and hope for throughout all of our relationships throughout the lifespan. Yeah. I'm really excited to dive into it a little bit more. So let's talk about what is co-regulation and why should SLPs know about it? Yeah. So I want to start off by just, you know, two different things that I think SLPs will latch on to. Number one, how often do we hear behavior management as SLPs? Um, And number two, how often do we talk about self-regulation as SLPs, self-regulation? 
Well, I want to debunk that in this podcast today. I'm really hoping to think to really change people's language that instead of behavior management, I hope we can start thinking of it as executive function teaching. And instead of self-regulation, which is obviously the end goal, but as we know, self-regulation is developing throughout our lifespan, that ability to kind of manage, be aware of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And really think about co-regulation, which is this interaction between, you know, when when we're talking about it with kids, it's this supportive interaction between a caregiver and a child that helps them connect the dots between their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And the next question is, well, how do we do that? Okay, great. Let's talk about that. There's three real key bubbles that they talk about with co-regulation, and there'll be a link in the show notes to a really phenomenal handout from UNC. The first one is provide warm, responsive relationships. The next thing is to create a supportive environment. And the third thing is to teach and model self-regulation skills. And so before we're gonna expect or ask kids to really do or execute self-regulation skills independently, I ask teams, I ask parents to back up and I say, let's look at these three bubbles that really funnel into self-regulation skills. Are we really providing those consistent, warm, responsive relationships? Are we able to provide that supportive environment? And what does that environment look like? And then the third thing is, how are we teaching and modeling self-regulation skills continuously across environments so that students can really get a consistent message of support no matter where they are? Such great tips. So can you just highlight those three points one more time to, those are building up for self-regulation, right? Yeah, you got it. So I picture it in, in my workshops, I'll often have a funnel and in the funnel is, warm, responsive relationships. The next thing is, is structuring the environment. And the third thing is teaching and modeling self-regulation skills. So as a, so I'll go through those three, if that's okay, I'll go through them right now, just a little bit more in depth. Yeah, that'd be great. The providing warm, responsive relationships. I often use the acronym COAST, C-O-A-S-T. And that's really continuously providing that warm, responsive relationship by first, number one, checking in with ourselves, the C, how regulated are we as the adults? Because we, every interaction we come in to and with, if we ourselves are not regulated, we're gonna be responding a little bit differently. And as humans, we are going to be dysregulated sometimes. So it becomes really important that if we're gonna teach kids their own self-regulation skills, we should probably be checking in on our, our own regulation first. So check in with self first, check in on my own regulation. And this is where with my son, Troy, I was, recognizing that when he was becoming dysregulated, I was becoming dysregulated. So I wasn't really able to be and provide that warm, responsive relationship because I was reacting to what was happening instead of responding to his needs, right? It's that adage saying, kids aren't trying to give you a hard time. They're having a hard time. They're learning. They're, they're going through an experience and they really need your support. Oh, we were just talking about this prior to our interview. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> The next steps that I'll tell parents or professionals is the OAS, observe, acknowledge, and support. So when kids are having any kind of experience, they're having an experience. So our job as the supportive caregiver and providing that relationship is to observe and acknowledge that experience. So what we try and do a lot is rush kids past the hard part of things and get them to the easy sunny part. So their favorite toy breaks, they don't get the game they wanted, they don't get to watch one more thing. And we say, it's okay. No, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's okay. We're trying to rush right over the experience that we're having instead of really observing, acknowledging, and supporting. So, oh, that happened. It looks like you might be frustrated. You're stomping your feet. It looks like that might, I wonder if you're really upset about that. 
those, you know, all feelings are, are, all feelings are welcome here, essentially is what I like to say. I don't just love you when you're mad, when you're happy, when you're excited. I love you no matter what feelings you have. Cause really what I want to do is teach kids that a wide emotional range is good and healthy. And as humans, we should be allowed to kind of experience all those feelings and loved and supported throughout them. The last, step, the last step of coast is teach. So I tell, I encourage people to think, have we gone through all those steps first before we try and teach? Because what, you know, Vanita, I know we will see this professionally, people will try and be teaching strategies when a kid is in the heart of dysregulation when they're very, very, very upset about something, when, when their sensory system has become overloaded. And what I like to think is if we're going through that COAS of the coast first, we're really kind of supporting a student to get back to that optimal level of learning or optimal level of play, whatever it is. And that, that is a, our optimal learning zone. That's what I tell students. So I'll tell students, you know, if you're really hypo aroused, you're, you're not really in that optimal learning zone quite yet. And if you're hyper aroused, you're not quite in that optimal learning zone, but you have this optimal learning zone that is really great for how we learn best. And it lurks different for every single student. And so I wanna really tell parents and professionals, let's make sure that we are using the COAS to support students to get back to that optimal level of learning. And as another note, to slide that in, make sure as teams you're talking about what does it look like when this child or student is optimally regulated? Because sometimes professionals might think that a student looks optimally regulated when really they're either hypo or hyper aroused. They're either shut down because their systems are overloaded or they haven't gotten enough input so they're hypo aroused. So where is their regulation state at? Are they, are they, are they optimally regulated? Are they ready to learn? Are they able to learn and receive information? And does the whole team know what that looks like for this student? That's a great tip. What was the C again? Check in. Check, check in, in okay. with self. Yeah, check in with self. Got it. So, say, uh, my great friend and colleague, Laura Bonazinga Bouye, she's in the state of Vermont as well. I had it as OST originally, but I kept telling parents, you know, make sure you check in with yourself first and then use this OST. And she said, what about coast? And I said, Laura, brilliant idea. <laughs> so, Don't you love that? Yes. All brains, more brains are better, right? We get more ideas. So that's the warm, responsive relationship. That's kind of the, the one of the, I like to think about the first step, but they're all equally important. Is that great. Let me just uh, summarize the coast really quick. So the C was check in with self, the OAS was observing knowledge and support, and the T is teach, just yeah. for anybody who's listening. You got it. Great. Okay. So um, the next one would be providing that supportive environment. Yeah. Structuring the environment or providing us a supportive environment. So for this, I use the acronym STAKE, S T A K E, STAKE it out. Um, the first one being the setting. What does the environment look like for the child? Um, you know, and really this is keeping an open mind, no judgments, but what type of environment is the child in, you know, at school, at home, at the clinic, at home, and how can we make that optimally supportive for this child? Um, and sometimes this is where I'll, I'll really look at the child's regulation abilities and I'll ask, you know, a skilled OT to come in to take a look because we want to really think carefully about how regulating an environment is or dysregulating an environment is as part of the setting component of this. The next part is in that setting, who are the key players, who are the primary communication partners, and who is really serving to provide that warm responsive relationship. So that's the first thing with setting. The next part is triggers and triggers for me is two point. Um, triggers is what could be possibly troubling or frustrating or aggravating for a child in an environment. 
And the next one is triggers from the executive functioning standpoint. How does this child know to transition or close a loop and move on to the next thing? Um, so I'll either talk about one or both of these when I meet with teams. So it might be, you know, if a student is having a hard time, for example, closing up the loop from, you know, I'll use a school example from, from the table to the floor, that's a, that's a trigger point. So how can we support them environment, provide a, you know, structure the environment so the student can close a loop and transition to playing on the floor. Um, I like to think, I always use that analogy of opening and closing loops. So, and I, you know, I didn't, I didn't come up with that. I'm pretty sure I've heard it somewhere. I always say that I, that's just language I've adopted, but that's how we can really think about supporting kids to really open loops, close loop, and then move on to the next loop, open loop, close loop. And every little task is really a self-directed goal behavior. So if I'm finishing a drawing at the table, I'm going to finish it. I'm going to close that loop. I'm going to really be able to press my internal pause button and then move to the next thing. And so that's a two point part of triggers. The next part is advocacy. And I talk about this a lot because, um, and in the show notes, I'll include this. I often hear teams using the word motivation. Motivation, you know, my colleague Leah Soffern and I, we talk a lot about how often motivation comes up. And Vanita, I don't know if this has come up for you, but oftentimes team will say, well, we just can't seem to find what motivates them or we just don't know what's motivating for them. Mm -hmm. And I wanna flip that, you know, there's a beautiful diagram from the Center for the Developing Child in Harvard. And it really shows the brain diagram for motivation and that it's internally wired. I am unlikely to motivate you. You are going to be motivated by something, but I can engage you in a task. I can, I can figure out what you're already motivated by and work my way in, but I'm unlikely to motivate you. You are going to be motivated by something. So I'll say for advocacy, that really falls into the question of how engaging is this activity for the child? And how can we teach them to advocate for something different? And if they can't, how can we teach them strategies to work through a task to completion? So across settings for structuring the environment, Let's say letters are a really hard task for a child. They don't want to engage with them. Okay, well, how are we going to A, either teach them to advocate for something different or B, teach them strategies to get through that task if it's a necessary task that's deemed essential for their education. Um, I tell my high schoolers all the time, you know, this is, this is, a, this is a, an assignment you might not love. So your options are, can you advocate to do something different? Or what are we gonna do so that you can move through this assignment to get through it and complete it because it's necessary for your education? So I looked at, I'd like to look at it from those two point lenses. Um, it can also you give an example? I know you just talked about like your high school students, but give an example of what it might look like when a student's advocating for themselves. Yeah, if they're, young, if, they're young, if they're younger, a lot of students, and I'll really speak maybe from the neurodiversity perspective, if an autistic student really loves something, and you know, a teacher is trying to come in with something different, a different, a different movie, a different video, a different song. How can we teach them to advocate for themselves so that in that environment, so that they can really get their needs met? Maybe they ask for a different song, a different, a different video clip, a different um, toy, so that we're really teaching that you have this ability to advocate for yourself in your environments. And I want to be teaching you that. I want to structure the environment in a way that I'm consistently teaching you how to advocate for your needs. Um, whether it's your needs, your, your physiological needs, whether it's for your you know, needs for desired activities and objects, whatever that might look like. But that, that's a continued focus for me as I'm structuring this environment, that advocacy is something that I'm really teaching for you. Okay. I understand. I think what you're saying, because I'm trying to figure out how it's different than like what 
you know, behavior management does, which is to try to get a motivator, but it sounds like we're putting the control in, in behavior management. When we are trying to find the motivator, we're putting that control in our hands when we're, it's really out of our control. Whereas like when we're helping the child advocate for themselves, they we're giving them that control. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And I think, um, you know, I follow the hashtag now actually autistic on Instagram. I am learning and unlearning on a daily basis. Um, and Rachel Dorsey just put out a phenomenal course for SL- for SLPs on uh, neurodiversity and writing goals from the neurodiversity perspective. And it's phenomenal. Um, I can't recommend it enough. But essentially what it reminds me of is looping back into all of this is that, am I trying to get you in, and I'm going to say this pretty bluntly here, am I creating goals or bringing activities in that are really trying to make that make this a neurotypical situation? Or am I honoring where you are at in your experience and teaching you how to advocate for what you need? Hmm. I love that. So that's the A, that's the A part of it. The mm-hmm. K and the E are um, know your struggle points. Um, and then E is know the end game. So K and E tend to be for older students, but I really like to think from a young age, um, teaching kids about their triggers. So, you know, from the beginning, we talked about triggers, but know your struggle plan, know what your plan is. The K is know what your plan is. Um, know what to do and how to really, you know, feel feelings or advocate for yourself. It all loops back in together, but know what happens if you feel yourself becoming dysregulated, if you notice those signs of dysregulation. Um, And, you know, from the neurodiversity perspective, that interoception can be really tricky. Um, And there's an interoception curriculum out there and I'll I'll loop that in, Vinita. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's pretty phenomenal. It's an interoception curriculum. It's really teaching kids all about that interoception sense. What's happening internally. So the no plan is not for the instructor. It's for the child. Yeah. You're teaching. Okay. You're teaching them that. Yeah. Yeah. So like social thinking, um, like the social thinking curriculum, would that be helpful in this case? Not specific to social thinking, but I'm just like thinking of something that is really familiar to SLPs. Yeah. Well, I, I'm really into for know your, know your plan. I'm really into right now, the alert program. How does your engine run or, or autism level up? Those okay. two um, are really neurodi- more neurodiverse. I'd say autism level up is probably the most neurodiverse friendly that I know of as of right now. They have their own uh, power plan and it's really based on energy states. And so we're really keeping this at an energy level awareness. And that's really where I'm at. I, you know, feelings, what are feelings, right? I could probably do a whole separate podcast on that, but they're really linguistic categories that we ascribe to physiological states. And so teaching kids energy states. So know if your energy is getting too low or know if it's getting too high and kids will need some support from us to really teach and structure the environment in a way where they can understand that, but know what to do when that happens. I know for me, I mean, I know we'll talk later about executive functioning, but I know my physiological signs when I'm starting to feel nervous or anxious about something. I know my strategies go for a walk, get outside, transition. Like I've learned to know that plan. And that's why I started to teach kids early. None of these feelings are bad. I don't want to create any kind of that correlation. I want to teach you that they're normal parts of being a human. And I want you to know your plan. So if you're in a setting and something happens where your energy level shifts, I want you to know your plan. And then the E is the end game. So, so I always teach the end game is essentially closing loops of everything. So teaching kids about what does that mean to kind of close a loop and open another one? So, and this is really kind of executive functioning based, but it goes back to that um, table example. What is the, what, it, what is, what is a mini goal? So this is where things like the goal plan, do review come in those type of checklists and formats or the goal, why plan, do review. 
so that we're really teaching kids about what end, what endpoints are and checkpoints are, like setting mini goals. What's my mini goal here? And how do I know I've completed it? And how do I know I need to move on? And we make mini goals all the time. They are part of our daily life. We make mini goals to get up and make breakfast. We make mini goals to get into the car. Um, but that can be really hard for a lot of our students. And I'll talk more um, when we dive into more executive functioning specific information about that. But okay. that's, that's the stake it out for the environment. Okay, so I'm gonna summarize that again. So the S was for setting, T's triggers, A advocacy, K no plan, and then E is end game. You got it, you got awesome. it. So that's how I kind of summarize those two components of um, co-regulation. Okay. Uh, the last one is teaching and modeling self-regulation skills. And if you look at George McCloskey's work, and he's a prominent researcher in the field of executive functioning, he really describes that self-regulation really encompasses all of the um, facets that we normally attribute to executive functioning. So flexibility, organization, problem solving, emotional regulation, attention, working memory. He really calls all of those facets the self-regulation component of executive functioning. Because if a, those are what often is challenged, when a student becomes dysregulated, it's often because one or more of those facets are differently functioning in that context, in that environment. And you'll notice I carefully use the word differently functioning instead of dysfunction. So this again comes all back into play for the, the neurodiverse lens of differently functioning, executive functioning, and that it might be different than what is considered neurotypical for a given situation. But I always say everybody's executive functioning profile has extreme strengths and areas of need. And number one, we wanna celebrate those strengths. And we also wanna support the student to be aware of and learn strategies for those areas of need. So when I talk about self-regulation, I think about it as really encompassing all of those skills that we commonly attribute to executive functioning. That's so good, my goodness. So we didn't really talk about why it's important for SLPs to know about this because you're sharing like really good references, but I'm assuming that these references are outside of the field of speech language pathology. It doesn't make the research less valid. It's just now how do we bridge that gap between our field and where this is coming from? You got it. And that's where I think I'm stepping into it now when I talk about self-regulation really being executive functioning. And we have loads of research to support that there is a close correlation between executive functioning and language skills. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of our students that we see with language disorders and complex communication disorders also struggle with executive functioning skills, initiating tasks, organizing their things, flexibility, problem solving. And there's also a copious amount of research in there that looks at the clear line between executive functioning skills and um, other, other commonly associated neurodiverse diagnoses such as ADHD and autism, and that those executive functioning skills are differently developing, which in our school systems can result in students really struggling academically, not just aside, aside from the, the, language, the language disorder component, but in terms of those areas of need for organization, flexibility, and problem solving. And since we have such a breadth of knowledge of SLPs about language, we are optimally trained to be supporting those executive functioning skills. Yeah, it's definitely within our scope. So I'm glad that you brought it back to executive functioning. I am wondering, are we going to talk about like goal writing for this type of skill? Ooh, at all today? I have some research resources for that. Yeah. Dawson and Guar, they, they wrote the smart, but scattered books. 
in their executive functioning specific books, but they have goals for executive functioning at the end of them. And they are really phenomenal. And I've been mixing those. Um, and then now that I've taken uh, Rachel Dorsey's course, they, she also incorporates some components as well. And so those two together provide a really great um, mix of goals for students to support their executive functioning skills. Okay, awesome. Yes. And then in terms of like age, like age appropriateness, when can you start working on this in speech and language therapy? Super young preschool. Okay. Preschool. I mean, I always think about if a student is struggling in the classroom with, with any of these facets. So you watch them in the classroom and in the Dawson and Guar books, they have checklists um, that you can give to parents, that you can give to um, teachers, that you can give to the students when they're older. And it really rates their skills along this spectrum of, of, of the different facets of executive functioning and ask questions, you know, basic questions for preschool. It's, you know, can the student transition from one activity to the next? Um, and, and it really does it from a developmentally appropriate manner. And so my little red flag ears go up whenever I hear terms such as having trouble transitioning, having trouble with regulation, having trouble keeping track of their stuff having trouble with impulse control, the, my little red flags go up and I, I say, okay, this is sounding like executive functioning. This is sounding like this student could really benefit from us looking at it from this lens and what can we do to teach and support this student with these skills. And that, start, that can start in preschool. We don't expect fully developed executive functioning in preschool, but there is a developmental trajectory of skills that we start identifying and talking about in preschool for um, what we consider to be a, a fairly typical projection of skill development. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. So how does co-regulation relate to executive functioning skills? You kind of talked about it, but can we dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, you got it. So co-regulation, as I said, kind of co-regulation, the last part of it is really the teaching and modeling those self-regulation skills, which is those executive functioning skills. So the last part of co-regulation is really teaching and modeling executive functioning skills. And so throughout my interaction with you, so I'll say in a session, let's say I'm going to give a session example with a preschooler. Preschooler comes in and just starts tossing things. They're very upset. They're super frustrated. And I think one of our first rules we can do is follow that coast method. So number one, am I calm as the professional? Because when we're thrown into situations where things seem a little bit unpredictable, again, our regulation states can change. Number two is, um, we're, so we're gonna check in with our own regulation first. The number, the OAS is the next thing. So I'm gonna observe, acknowledge and support, obviously keeping everybody safe, but observing, acknowledging and supporting that student where they're at to support them to get back to that optimal level of regulation or optimal level of learning. Like what might you do in that case? Or what might you say? What might I say? I'm going to say as little as possible because really my role as a supportive and providing that warm, responsive relationship is identifying that as we all know as SLPs, when a student is in the heart of dysregulation, they're not processing the language I'm using. There's a lot of research to suggest that when a student or child is having a hard time, if we can safely do so to get below their eye level, because that's biologically less threatening, we tend to cower when we're trying to assume power and that can make a dysregulated child have a harder time. Um, but the, the next part is we're gonna observe, acknowledge and support. So observe, acknowledge and support the experience. You are mad, you're frustrated. Obviously we wanna do so in a way that, gets the, that, that keeps the child safe. So we might you know, provide any sensory items we might have. We might wanna dim the lights to bring that sensory experience back in. We wanna limit our language and we wanna be careful also of what our face is doing. There's also research to suggest that 
when we are in an interaction or a confrontation, we're reading each other's faces more than anything. We're not really processing a lot, but we are reading faces very carefully. And so being really thoughtful about how can I really think about what my face is doing, really monitor my language, and then really be thoughtful about how to support that student to get back to the optimal level of regulation. And that's why within that, knowing the knowing the, knowing the plan or creating that plan for a student and knowing what it is and being able to support the student to follow that is really important. That's also why as SLPs, we are optimal people to be working and teaching those skills when a student is common regulated, teaching the plan, practicing the plan when a student is optimally regulated so that they have the feeling of what it's like to practice their regulation plan when they're not in a moment of dysregulation. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so do these like does coast and stake, do they have to go in like a particular order or are these things to just keep in mind when this is happening? Yeah, keep in mind. They're all part of the, the co-regulation experience. Okay. And so co-regulation again being, this is a, this is a relationship between the two of us and keeping in mind that we do this as adults. So if you have a terrible day, what's the first thing you want to do? Call, um, call someone. Or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, right. Maybe like sometimes people, some people are like, grab a glass of wine. Absolutely. Right. We'll do whatever you're, you're going to do. Go for a run, grab a glass of wine. But some no, plan. <laughs> yeah. At some point we might want to talk with somebody. We might want to be able to, to just be like, have somebody listen and support us. Yeah. What's the hardest thing. If you're like, I had this terrible day, this thing happened, this thing happened. And the person cuts you off and goes, it's fine. You're okay. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. instantly feel a lack of validation you went like your whole perception changes sometimes even changes about the other person because your experience there's no room for your experience and kind of what like, and it's the same with kids kind of sharing that experience and so while as students are younger and that impulse control is lower and so it looks different it kind of continues up throughout the spectrum of ages and that if we can if we can really provide this observe acknowledge and support and then teaching, the last step is teaching. Then we're gonna teach those strategies for executive functioning, for self-regulation. We can make a massive difference for students to really empower them to be aware of these different skills for executive functioning and how to really be able to be successful academically and also life-based and not through other relationships in life. That's so good, awesome. So what steps should SLPs take to help students learn self-regulation strategies? Yeah, so I, I always um, like to think about really understanding and, and identifying what, for every student, what is their optimal level of learning look and feel like? When they're at the zone of optimal learning, what does that look like? What does that feel like? And does the student have an awareness of, of when they're there and when they're not? And obviously this looks different for all kinds of learners, but that's where I like to start. Um, and I like to start with thinking about that perspective and teaching students about that, that you have an optimal level of learning, um, that you, that you feel when you feel that way. And when you look that way, this is when you're, when you're at your optimal level of learning, that's, that's really starting to be aware of kind of that emotional regulation component. And we know there's also a bunch of other regulations included. There's cognitive regulation, there's, um, physiological regulation, meaning like if a student's thinking this is too hard, I can't do this, or I mean, Rachel Dorsey uses that example. I also use the example of if a student starts to have a lot of, a lot of thoughts flying and they start to get really busy. Um, there's also internal, like if they're hungry, thirsty, cold, tired, there's a bunch of factors there. But asking students, what do I look like when I'm really optimally ready to learn? And so again, part of the co-regulation part of this is I'm teaching you these things. What I often see, Vanita, is these goals are created for students to self-regulate and I'll ask teams, awesome, like 
this is developing independence with regulation is a lifelong goal that we can all hope to work towards you know developing healthy ways to cope with the really unfortunate things that can happen in life but what are we doing as as the warm responsive caregiver we're structuring the environment what are we doing to teach these skills what are we doing to teach these skills across time how like how much of how much of a of a sessions or who is teaching these skills and allowing the child to practice them and that's often the missing part that i found is that there'll be goals for self-regulation there'll be goals for executive functioning maybe but how much time is actually allocated towards teaching how to do those skills. And that's where I really think the missing crux is. And I think, you know, SLPs plates are so full, but I always tell SLPs, I weave this into my sessions. So for example, I'll make a plan. Like planning is a key facet of executive functioning, planning and prioritizing. I'll make a plan with students and I'll say, all right, we've got, how much time do we have in our sessions? They'll say, you know, whatever it is, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I'll say, awesome, can you make a prediction for me? How long do you think each of these things will take us? Okay, should we prioritize any of these things? Okay, great. And then at the very end, we'll review, how do we do? How do we do on time constructs? And that's teaching. I'm not expecting perfection, but across time, I'm gonna see improvements because I am teaching that skill of predicting, planning, projecting time, and how to prioritize. I like that suggestion. So can you talk about like some specific self-regulation strategies that might be taught? Yeah. And I think, Vanita, do you mean within the context of self-regulation executive functioning strategies or? Sure. Yeah. I use use them interchangeably in terms, because that's, you know, that's how I've come to better think about self-regulation is that it's really all of these executive functioning skills. Yeah. Executive functioning is, is a really kind of hotly debated, talked about concept as far as defining it. Um, but if you look at some of the really best known researchers in the area and, and how we define executive functions or executive function skills, they're really a group of skills or a group of cognitive skills or a group of cognitive processes, however you want to refer to them, that really um, support us and allow us to act in a focused, regulated, and goal-directed way. And I want to I break that down a little bit. Um, so focus is really being clear and having a plan. Regulated is kind of that emotional regulation component. In goal-directed way, um, people sometimes often get a little bit hung up on, well, what does that mean? And I always say that goals are, we they're open loops and, cl- and closing loops that we do every single day. We open loops and we close loops. We make a plan to get ready for work in the morning, we close that loop. We get into the car on time, we close that loop. We get to work and we get started, we close that loop. We start like, you know, I'm thinking specifically about SLPs. If we think about our day, we are opening and closing loops often at a really, really, really rapid rate. So I just yesterday, I started time auditing myself um, and task auditing myself. So SLPs, you might've had been asked to do this. If you work in a school, you might be asked to do this um, for productivity, but I like to do it to really track where is a lot of my time and energy going And it allows me to see how often I'm opening and closing loops throughout a day, which um, problems, problems are just things that pop up. Plans are just things that pop up and problems aren't inherently bad. And, you know, I just I'm in the process of finalizing a curriculum that can teach and practice executive function skills called teaching problem solvers. And I talk about problems as just natural things that happen when things don't go the way we thought they would. So we make little plans and when they don't go the way we thought they would, how our original plan was, 
that might reroute us a little bit. And we have to come up with a, as I talk about in the episode of plan B or a plan C or a plan D because 2020 last year really, um, <laughs> really encouraged us to make multiple plans. So, so problems got this bad rep because, because people will say, well, how do you, well, this is a problem. Well, problems are just so merely when things don't go the way we thought that they would. Um, and if you ever um, listen to My Little Pony, there's a very, very great song there called Time to Be Awesome. And it is my problem-solving theme song. If you've never heard of it, go listen to it. <laughs> For all you parents out there, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but essentially, problems, these the, looping back to the goal directed, that we have little loops that we open every single day, little plans that we open every single day. And when it goes the way we thought they would, that loop is closed, and then we just keep going. When it doesn't go the way that we thought it would, that's just an open loop that we have to figure out how to close it. So the example might be you try to get work for ready for work on time. You got a plan, but then on the way out the door, your coffee spills everywhere. And so you kind of have to figure out, okay, I got to clean this up. I got to get my papers organized. You got to rework your plan. And we can't, we do that all day long. And when our executive functions are, you know, working in a relatively regulated, focused, directed way, those things might throw us a little bit, but they might not throw us a lot. Um, but for our students who are working on or have differently developing executive functions, little problems that pop up. And again, remember little problems, problems are, are not bad. They're just when things don't go that way we thought they would. Um, it might really throw our students. And as, as SLPs, we might see this all the time, little goal-directed ways. So um, a student really wants to watch a movie, but then last minute the class changes and they're gonna watch a different movie. And maybe that's a really big deal for this student. Um, because they had a plan and they had mapped it out that they were going to be watching this movie. And I always say, for some of our students, it's like a GPS that only knows one way to get to places. So they map out in their brain just this one way. They So they essentially, if they had developed that ability to forward think, they're able to look forward just one way. They see themselves watching that movie and they see themselves enjoying that movie. And all of a sudden that plan is wiped clean and their GPS goes, ah, what do I do now? So that's why practicing rerouting plans and practicing talking about um, how to really reroute and rethink and stay regulated and focused and and calm when those problems pop up is really important. Because, um, you know, as I, I talk a lot about with students, Dr. Dan Siegel and Dr. Tina Payne Bryson talk about um, the upstairs and the downstairs brain. And that when we are in our downstairs brain, we're in our, as I talked about in the episode, the four Fs, the, the limbic system, more or less. And we're not in our thinking brain. We're in our reactive brain. And so one of the most important things when we get, we, we bump into a plan is to tr really try and keep our stress scale low or work on lowering our stress scale so we can get back into our thinking brain. So I will often use a 10-point stress scale with my students. And again, stress and problems, those two words have gotten really bad reps. And I like to tell my students that a little bit of stress is what keeps us going. A little bit of stress, a little bit of stress, you know, that little bit of stress of needing to get something done, a little bit of stress of learning something new. It's just when things are new around us, but it's when the demands start to see the capacity, that's how we've come to define stress. And so really redefining stress has become really important. But I tell my students, it's important to work on identifying when you're climbing that stress scale or when your energy is changing into a more, um, a more, and a more too much energy or too much nerves or, or if you're using more of a, a energy-based vocabulary like autism level up, which is phenomenal, go check it out. Um, if you are using more of that vocabulary, then 
the what, what however you think about it you want to think about sliding down to that place where you're back into your thinking brain so when you bump into those problems and oh we can't watch this movie today um i'm not telling you how big this problem is or how small po- this problem is i'm going to honor however you feel about it um the point is we are not going to be in our problem solving and thinking brain if we're really too high on that stress scale or too high on the energy scale so if we can come back down, we can really get to our problem solving and or thinking brain and think about, okay, what are our other options here? Um, because there are always options. There's always a way to figure it out. And, you know, I talk to my students about plan A or plan B or plan C, um, as I said in the episode, you know, which of those can we do? And so really looping back to executive functions, what are they? A group of cognitive processes that allow us to act in a focused, regulated goal-directed way. They allow us to open and close loops throughout the day. And so I hope that this gives a greater framework in thinking about those executive functions and how skills that are included in this area, like organization, planning, prioritizing, flexibility, working memory, attention, um, metacognition, how all of these skills kind of play into that goal-directed way, because we need all of those skills to really open and close those loops and uh, successfully kind of readapt how to close loops throughout our day. But what I like to say is I'm really providing support for the student in their day-to-day life so that they can maximize their daily performance. I can teach skills. So while I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the evidence to catch up. I'm waiting for the research to catch up. I'm using what I know to date. I'm using my, my clinical judgment to really support these students to be able to be successful in the, their daily endeavors. So the things I target the most are planning and prioritization, organization, um, flexibility, which I'll touch on, but let's talk a little bit about planning and prioritization because that essentially is one of the key ways that we function as human beings. We are able to plan and prioritize our tasks every day. (laughs) We figure out essentially what our schedule is and we learn, we learn how to do that. We learn how to do it effectively. We learn what we need to do. And that's how we, that's how we essentially move forward as human beings. So I've noticed less and less that schools are using planners. I've noticed, I don't know if you remember Vanita, when we were kids that like planners were my jam. We got it for free. It was, I (laughs) used it all the time. Yes. Like maybe in other States, I don't know. I can speak about Vermont specifically, but I'm not seeing planners anymore. Hmm. I'm not seeing, um, like, and I know a lot of, a lot of the world is going digital, which I think is great. What about our younger kids that don't, you know, maybe we, they don't have access to that tech early on. I'm really, those are the kids I'm really thinking about is the younger kids, maybe like fourth grade and under is really teaching them how to plan for things. Well, even if they do have access, not to cut you off, but even if they do have access to the digital, how many people listening to this right now prefer a paper-based planner? Correct. (laughs) I can guarantee you it's over 50%. Yes. Yes. And part of that, you know, is that we probably a majority of, of, the, of our group, given, you know, the varying ages we are, but that paper planners were a thing when we were a bit, that's kind of slowly phased. that I'll be interested in this, like this next round of SLPs that come out in 15, 20 years, what will they prefer? You know, what will they prefer? But even if you think we need a creatively about digital planning, there's digital planners that you could technically write on or use. Um, but I'm not even seeing that being tried. Right. And that one, that type I prefer because I like the writing piece, but if I have to type something in, there's definitely research. I feel bad that I'm not able to quote it right now, but there's, um, research about how we memorize things better when we write them down. And I, I've heard that it has more to do with the motor movement 
than it does necessarily with just like, um, you know, familiarity. So I think the same goes for like the planners as well, you know, kids writing it down versus typing it in. You would think that they would like memorize it a little bit better, but you're right. I don't see a lot of planners flying around anymore. Yeah. It was just that ability to kind of say and to, to teach. Okay. So this is happening on this date. And, you know, Sarah Ward is another SLP in our field. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's phenomenal. She also specializes in executive functioning. Sarah Ward and Kristen Jacobson, both, they own 360 Connections and it's really executive functioning. It's an executive functioning based organization. And she has a a program, a really a method called Get Ready, Do Done. And if you haven't heard of it, I really encourage you to go check it out. But essentially it recommends starting with the end in mind. So, okay, if I know I have a birthday party on the 19th, that's my end. And what is that birthday party gonna look like? Uh, who's gonna be there? She you know that they, the two of them talk about stop, space, time, uh, I think objects, people, thinking about all those things as part of the end game. So, okay, we're, let's say the birthday party example, the birthday party is on the 19th. Okay, what space are we gonna be using? What's the time frame gonna look like? What's gonna be there for things? What do we need for things? And who are the people that are gonna be there? You know, so really thinking about, and then once we know the end, the end, the end in mind, we work backwards. Okay, so these are all things that we know need to be there. Now that do part, now those are all the steps we need to do to get to done. And the get ready is what do I need? What do I need to start with? What do I, what, you know, do I need a planner in the phone? What do I need to start this process? And you can use this for social events. You can use this for academic events, but it really is teaching kids that we have to have some concept of what it means to be done with, with this task, what it's going to look like when it's done and creating that picture in our mind. And I agree, you know, I, you know, Brene Brown in dare to lead said, uh, paint done, learn how to paint done. When we are effective in our communication, we are clear on what done looks like. We are clear on what the end looks like. And so a lot of our students only know how to plan forward. Like, okay, great. I have this paper due on the 19th. Okay, today I'm going to work on the first paragraph and next week I'll work on the second paragraph. And oh no, it's the night before and I have all of this left to do. (laughs) When am I going to do it? And so even for younger kids, I, I talk about, you know, play schemes. So what, you know, what do you picture done to look like? What do you want this play scheme to look like? And with younger kids, I teach them all about communicating what done looks like. What does this play scheme look like to you? Because oftentimes when kids have conflicts, it's some difficulty in communicating their vision on the play scheme and or learning how to negotiate the play scheme. And so that's, that's some of what I'll also work on with students. So if you haven't heard of the Get Ready, Do Done, it's a phenomenal resource for um, executive functioning. And I use the, the method, I use the model a lot in my practices and I have an extreme amount of respect. They are two phenomenal SLPs. Some of the other things I do is just quickly, I'll do, I'll talk to kids about a plan A, plan B, plan C, teaching kids the art of when we create a plan, um, oftentimes if that plan doesn't work, we have the ability to shift to plan B. And this is where I also like to tell teams, this is where flexibility comes in. A lot of teams will say, well, they need to work on being flexible. And I'll often counter and I'll say, it's oftentimes students who struggle with flexibility or what's called flexibility. It's often that they have not learned or their brain has not yet developed that skill and how to shift to a, to a different plan. So essentially, I like to think about it as a GPS that they've mapped out essentially the whole destination. And when you say, oh, nope, sorry, the movie theater's closed. Or, oh, no, we can't watch that TV show. Or, oh, no, we can't do that. They have no other map to shift to. They have no other G- There's no other GPS. The GPS cannot reroute. So that can be really dysregulating. Imagine you're on a road and all of a sudden they say, you need to take this detour and your GPS stops working and you don't know where you're going. You don't know what's going to happen. You haven't painted that, painted that done yet. 
that can be really frustrating. So I start working early with kids about that. And how do you like work on something like that? Yeah. I start using that language right away. So as soon I tell kids all the time with problems, problems are just open loops that it didn't work out the way you thought they would. And that's where we can bring in our plan B. But what I've started to talk with kids about in, and I encourage with younger kids, it's easier to say plan A, plan B Mm -hmm. With with my older students. I'll describe it like this. What's the problem? What's, or what's your plan? Uh, I want to go to the movies Friday night. Okay, great. Let's say a problem pops up. You can't go to the movies. Plan A is what can you do differently? What can you do as, as you to, to, to fix this problem? Plan B is, is there anybody else that could help you with this? Because I like to really encourage independence, but I also want to honor sometimes problems need support. And plan C is, can we change our thinking about this? Because sometimes the movie theater's closed and there's no other option and nothing else feels right. So is there any way to change anything about this? And that's not disregarding any strong feelings they have. It's just, is there a way I can think differently about this? With younger students, all I'll say is plan A is my original plan and plan B is what can I do if plan A doesn't work out? Makes sense. (laughs) I feel like that's something we use as adults. I like that it's something that you can use for kids as well. Yes, yes. So- a lot of this seems very like abstract versus like concrete. I'm just trying to imagine how to teach this in a concrete way for someone who maybe benefits more from like visual input um, or tactile input. Are you, are there, I'm sure like these curriculums probably incorporate that. Am I right? Yeah. And I think these are all things that I'm explaining verbally, but I use visuals for all of these things. Okay. So I'll use the get ready, do done for an example. I do AAC evaluations in Vermont and I know you you do um, AAC work as well. And a lot of the time, sometimes daily living tasks, like getting ready in the morning, getting, getting, getting to school on time is, is hard. It's a hard task. It can be a challenging task. And so the get of the get ready, do done, or that paint done, you take a picture of the child fully dressed, ready for school, backpack on lunch in hand. You take a picture of that. And then you break it down, the, the do, you break it down into a task sequence of step-by-step what they can do, how they can order it to really complete that and get to the done component of the day. So for example, like a task analysis, got it. You got it. That's the do. And the get ready is what do I need? So the, it starts to talk to kids about the things that they need to get ready. So, okay, backpack, make sure all this stuff is together. The do is the steps and then done is what does it look like when it's all done? And I use that with, I use this with, with students, non-speaking all the way up to highly verbal students. So, so it works across the, the trajectory. So I hope that gave you a little bit more information, Benita. I hope, I hope that helps. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for explaining that. So was that part of the best way to teach social communication play and executive functioning skills, or is there more that you wanted to um, talk about that? In terms of social communication and play, I've, I'm really evolving into teaching um, strategies, really explicit and concrete strategies for social communication and play. So for play, I, I you know, again, I'll pull in, I want, I want SLPs to be thinking about if a student is struggling in play, to be thinking about those executive functioning facets, as well as do they know how to play with the given object or the given toy? Do they know how to interact with it? And sometimes this, can, this comes up a little bit more with non-speaking students because we might, we might not have as much verbal information. But what I've come across with younger students and even you know middle school students who are non-speaking, teams will assume either a child is refusing to play with something or you know gets really dysregulated when playing with something. 
And oftentimes what pops up is they haven't really mapped out how to play with something or how to play with students in an activity. So directing play towards self with an object or directing play towards others with an object. So I use a ton of video previewing um, where I'll preview how to play with a toy and it'll just be literally showing how to play with the toy. Uh, the video will just be literally maybe of you know, putting a Lego thing together, or the video will be of an interaction between two kids playing with a board game. And I'll preview that with a student, you know, over several sessions so that they can really learn how to play with an object, um, how to play with the toys, how to, how to have a back and forth interaction with students. And so that's the real, for me, along with those executive functioning facets, it's important to think about, do they know how to interact with the tools that are there and how to interact with the tools with others that are around the play tools? That is so good. Is there a specific um, like video service that you like to use or you just kind of go to YouTube? I, I make all my own videos. So I just started my own YouTube, Vanita, the Brainy SLP on YouTube, but I make my own videos on Loom. So I use Loom a ton. I do so much video previewing these days where I will either video, because you know, with teletherapy, what I found was if I video preview my session, what's going to pop up, my students show up. I think, you know, sometimes that difficulty, what we see as difficulty showing up is that apprehension about, I don't know what to expect here, but if I can video preview it, I've got a little bit of a map. I know what you're going to do. Um, and so showing up might be a little bit easier because I have a little bit of an uh, understanding of what's going to happen, but I video preview uh, using Loom all the time. I highly recommend Loom. I used to use Screencastify. That's another one, um, but Loom, I found I can integrate into emails and I can respond with videos. And so I just like that platform better now. So I make my own on Loom. Awesome. Yeah. I haven't got to uh, explore Loom too much, but I've heard a lot of really good things about it. So I'm going to definitely take a look. Yes. You'll love it. You'll love it. I use it for modeling AAC and all that good stuff. So it's come in handy. It's been a great tool. Cool. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on today before we wrap up? Uh, which is the last part. So, you know, I've just looping one more time back into social communication is that I will often teach, you know, those three phases of communication. So this all loops in, right? This all all comes together. So, you know, bringing you through the trajectory, this co-regulation experience with a, with a trusted caregiver, where I'm providing this responsive relationship, I'm, I'm supporting to structure the environment. I am teaching you these skills that are really executive functioning skills. But along with executive functioning skills, I also really need to have these social communication skills. You know, do I know how to initiate, maintain, and terminate a conversation? Do I know how to read extra-linguistic and paralinguistic information? Extra-linguistic being facial expressions, body gestures, all that. And paralinguistics being how I change my voice, tone, stress, all that. Do I know how to? And you know, I'm gonna you know, just throw another plug in there for Rachel Dorsey's course because it really goes into this more in depth, but I really say, does a student know how to? Do they know, do they know how to read this information? Essentially, I'm not trying to make you read this or make you mask to do this, but do you, know, do you have the tools to know how to decode this information so that if you want to, you can do this in a given interaction? And that's what's most important to me. Awesome. Well, this has been amazing so informative and it's definitely a newer area um, of our field. I can hopefully say that with confidence because I haven't had anybody else come on the podcast to talk about it. Yay. So 
Um, I'm excited for the listeners to hear this. I think that there's probably going to be a lot of follow-up questions. We'll be sure to include some of those references in the tassel handout for sure. Um, but yeah, where can everybody find and connect with you if they have other questions? Yeah. So either finding me at, on Instagram at Miss Danielle Kent, and we can probably link that in the show notes, I bet. Um, and also my website, daniellekent.com. Those are two of the most common places um, on Facebook. I'm Danielle Kent. And I really am responsive to questions and messages. Like one of my, one of my greatest hopes is like real true connection in our field and real clear like communication and, and, and valuable relationship building. So I really do welcome questions. I welcome feedback. I welcome all of it. So um, I'm excited to connect. So I also wrote a book, um, I self-published it called Max Learns to Pause. And it really stems a lot from the work I was doing on co-regulation. And I started it in the fall of 2019. Obviously COVID happened, but then I was very passionate about publishing this. And it really walks through the book with Max a puppy who gets really frustrated about something that happens and his mom kind of co-regulates with him. And the whole book is all about um, really supporting kids through the process as they work through those feelings. And then as when they're calm, you know, the book says, you know, when you're calm to respond, um, that's when you're, you're best in your thinking brain and, you know, best able to make your decisions. So I really enjoyed writing the book. Um, I've gotten a lot of great feedback about it and um, it's really, it's a real passion project for me. I really value teaching kids through this fun little character, Max, all about the value of feeling all of your feelings and also teaching professionals this, this uh, area of co-regulation. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And I'm glad that you've been getting good feedback because I don't know of a lot of books that are out there, children's books that address the co-regulation piece. So that's awesome that you created that. Yes. With your help, Anita, with your help. <laughs> Just the publishing piece, no writing. <laughs> that was all you girl. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's awesome. I'm so proud of you. Thank you again for coming on today. This has been incredible. I'm a little bit mind blown right now. There's a lot of information I have to sift through. And I know the listeners will just love like learning more about this. Cool. Thank you, Benita. Guess what? This episode is worth 0.1 ASHA CEUs. However, listening to this pod course does not automatically guarantee ASHA CEUs or a certificate. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs for this pod course, please visit tasseltogether.com to create an account, pick a membership level, and access the course materials. Tassel will automatically submit your course participation to ASHA once the course requirements are met. Remember to check the course details section under each course on the website for completion deadlines. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this pod course. <laughs>